It was uh, last week that we began looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. We started to think a little bit about Corinth and what was going on there. Corinth was a great city. It was a uh, port. It was young. It had only, um, in its modern form, only been founded uh, less than a hundred years before. There weren't old stuffy traditions in that city. It was just full of vibrant cosmopolitan life. It was bright and dazzling and exciting to be in that city and it gathered people from all over the world, just like modern cities today that are, are, are bright and dazzling in lots and lots and lots of ways, most especially in uh, Corinth in particular, which was uh, um, liberated from uh, the constraints of many more conservative cities, it was just full of choice. You could choose to eat food from any continent of the known world, to dress in the silk from India or uh, um, uh, a linen from the, the, the northern parts of Europe. It was just a place teeming with choice. But it was a city with a dark underbelly too. People could make bad choices as well as good and they could fall very rapidly and very quickly. There was plenty of poverty in Corinth as well as wealth. There were plenty of people who were destitute and miserable as well as bright and happy. And, uh, of course, because it was a port, it had a massive sex industry. Thousand uh, temple prostitutes in one, uh, uh, in one temple alone. And undoubtedly, many, many miserable women being abused. Bright and dazzling it was as a city, full of choice, corrupt and depraved with many miserable people. Really rather like our modern cities where uh, in London, for instance, more gets spent on prostitution than on the uh, public transport system. I learned a few years ago, where women are trafficked into this city and live in virtual slavery, where people experience poverty that 30 years ago they just weren't experiencing as the gap between rich and poor rises in this country. Corinth was very familiar to us and therefore, in many ways, the church ought to be familiar to us. Because it was, a, it was a church, the Corinthian church, that gathered all of those people from all stratas of society together. There were rich and poor, there were um, severely damaged people, there were confident, successful people. And uh, everybody gathered there um, assuming that one was free to make a choice. You choose religions 
And surely uh, within Christianity you choose the flavour of religion and the flavour of Christianity that you want. So it's not particularly surprising that in that city there was a massive culture of competition. All sorts of Christian leaders were popping up all over the place saying, I've got the key, I've got the answer, this is, I could build the best um, Christian congregation you can imagine, come and join me, I know how really to be a Christian and everybody swayed one way or another depending on who the most attractive leader ought to, they, they thought who was the most attractive leader. Not so far, sadly, from our modern world. It may not yet, in this country, the differences between churches and the competition that there is between churches, let's be honest, may not yet have reached the uh, uh, horrible proportions that there were in Corinth. But we're not so far from it as we like to think. And in the midst of uh, that swirling world, there was one key missing ingredient. Missing, actually, and not mentioned in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. We only start to get a flavour of um, what Paul is missing out when we know how he introduces himself to other churches. He was always extremely keen to um, say all the good things that he could about any church he wrote to before he got on to any criticisms. And he does the same here. Verse 4, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. In him you've been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and all your knowledge. Um, You don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ and so on and so forth. But there is a missing word there that comes up again and again as he congratulates other churches. It's the word love. Now in that city, you see, the leaders didn't love their people. They were too busy chasing approval ratings. The uh, people were uh, not learning to love and be loved because they were actually constantly just looking for that leader, that congregation, that group that would provide the key answer to all of their spiritual problems. Paul began to address this, uh, uh, this church in this city last week and we saw, he said very clearly, First of all, he said, I'm no one special. Don't look to me as perhaps a greater guru than the rest. I'm no one special at all. And you're no one special. You're not going to be somehow elevated as a Christian if you find exactly the right leader and exactly the right uh, uh, teaching or spiritual experience. Everybody, everywhere, as Emily reminded us, is just someone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. There is no other thing than a bog-standard Christian. We saw that last week. We're no one special. It's Christ who is special, said Paul. Christ who appears in virtually every, every one of the first uh, six verses. Christ who does everything. And Christ, crucially, says Paul, who sanctifies you, who makes you holy, who sets you apart for himself 
so that we will never be separated from the love of God. It's him who ought to be at centre stage in church. He's not leaders. It's him that we ought to be seeking, not actually the next guru who will solve all of our problems. And it's that theme that Paul continues today in verses 4 to 9 that we are going to explore. explore. Exploring it, remember... In, a, in an environment very like ours, where we just assume choice. Oxford's full of different churches, different flavours. This time of year, and all the churches are full of people who are thinking, now, is that the right flavour for me? Will that float my boat? Oxford's full of people who are, as well, damaged and feeling their own sinfulness. They were desperately looking for a solution. So they go from church to church looking. Paul addresses then Oxford. And he says, uh, first of all, he says to these, uh, these Christians, understand this, you are not poor in your knowledge. Verse 5, from him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and all your uh, um, knowledge, he says. The church here, this, uh, this Corinthian church is deeply troubled and yet he says they have been enriched in every way in all their speaking, all of their knowledge. Knowledge, you see, and speaking were enormously highly valued in Corinth. They were looking for the great public speaker who would, uh, who would, who would lead the people and answer all questions and reveal all wisdom and knowledge. And Paul says to them, ordinary Christians you're already rich. Totally rich. In particular, your speaking and your knowledge, what you're running around searching for, is already rich. It was rich from the moment you first became Christians. Why? Verse 6. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Something happened, he says, when you first became a Christian. I told you about Jesus. I told you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That in Jesus, God himself was paying for all of your sin. And I told you as well that Jesus rose from the dead in, uh, given a, a new life to his body as the promise that you will live new, physical, bodily life in the new heaven and the new earth in which God himself dwells and there is no longer any mourning or crying or pain or sin or anything that presently troubles us. And you believe that.
My testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, says Paul. And from that moment, you knew the only riches there is to know. You could speak the richest thing that it is possible to speak. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus rose from the dead. You're rich. Ordinary Christians, you're rich. These teachers, you see, were saying, well, Paul told you the basics. But he didn't dig down to find the real treasure. We're going to tell you the the deep things of God, the hidden, 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 hidden treasure. Right now, you Christians who've only just heard the basic gospel, you need to understand you're poor, you're impoverished in your knowledge. Come to us and we'll tell you the real McCoy. And Paul says, that is absolute rubbish. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have the richest knowledge imaginable. I work very hard to try and explain the riches of the Bible to you, as do others preachers in this city. But I need to understand and you need to understand. I'm not going to give you any magic new ingredient. I'm not going to suddenly unfold some truth to you that you don't already know if you're a Christian. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose to promise you eternal life. That is riches. In one sense that sounds a little bit boring, doesn't it? Does that mean I'm going to be sitting in church for the rest of my life listening to, uh, listening to sermons that are just going to tell me the same thing again and again and again? Won't I be bored silly? Shouldn't I, don't I need some, some, something a little bit extra? Let me, let, let, let me try to explain to you what the rest of your life of learning is going to be like. Imagine that you wandered out into the back garden and uh, you were sort of pottering around there and suddenly you saw in the grass a sort of tip of something. You scrabbled away a little bit and it's the top of a jewel that is obviously very big. And you say, that's mine. It's in my garden. That's mine. A jewel is the gospel and you've just become a Christian. What do you do with the rest of your life? Well, you clean the surface of the jewel a bit, don't you, to look at it. You start digging around to see how big it is and it's astonishing, I tell you, that is a massive jewel under there. So you come out again and again and you dig a bit more and you clean off a little bit more and you get someone to help you to uh, polish it up so that you can see its facets, you can see how, how bright it is and you never, ever get to the end of discovering how big and beautiful that jewel is. 
Now suppose someone says, hang on a minute, over here there's another one. This one will tell you how to be rich in this life. Uh, you can get it easily, this one's difficult to dig up. This one will tell you, um, uh, tell you how to, to solve all your inemo- emotional problems. This one will tell you whatever. If you've got any sense, you say, this one's the one I'm sticking with and this one is the one I'm going to look at and going to dig down to discover more of and going to uh, ask people to help me to see its beauty for the whole of my life. It is not boring dwelling on those simple riches of Jesus Christ for the rest of our life. It is the greatest voyage of discovery we, we could ever have But there is no other jewel, there is no other wealth, there is no other riches that you will ever find that you did not know when you were first, the first day you were a Christian. That's what Paul's saying. So don't walk around thinking you're poor. Running after people who think they, uh, who claim they will give you rich knowledge. Walk around knowing you're rich in knowledge. Filled with excitement that the rest of life will be about discovering the height and breadth and depth and beauty of the love of God. You Christians, every one of you, says Paul, Understand, you're rich, you are not poor. That affects our attitude to perhaps different churches or different Christian books that we might read. We'll have a less expectation of them as if they're going to magically transform our lives. We'll have a sober expectation. We will not align ourselves with a guru. We just say, I know Jesus. Perhaps others can help me a bit. But I know Jesus. And it will have an effect on the way we relate together as well. Because there are people here, who, because it's Oxford, whose brains are the size of a planet, aren't they? And there are people here who have difficulty reading. But they are all equally rich if they're Christians. No one need feel inferior. No one need consider themselves superior. You're rich, says Paul, if you know Jesus. And suddenly, you see, love can flow. Where disparity in knowledge had divided these believers and could divide us. A deep sense of our common riches means that there's not a single one of us, even if we can barely read the words of the Bible, if we are a believer here, 
who need feeling the least bit inferior to someone who's got a doctorate from one of the greatest universities in the world. Now there is reason, clear reason, why Paul says to these people, you're rich. And then he says, you're not left behind in your gifts. Verse 7, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to reveal. When Paul says you do not lack, we should perhaps have the image of a sort of tired, middle-aged jogger lagging behind all those super fit young uh, uh, companions of his who are half his age and speeding away into the, into the distance. Yes, that image comes from personal experience. <laughs> but you're not lagging behind, says Paul. Nobody is left behind. Not as if we all have exactly the same gifts or the same number of gifts. There are people who are very gifted by God. There are people with a lesser number of gifts. Jesus made that plain when he told the parable of the talents with ten and five and one talent given. Now it's not that everybody has exactly the same gifts. What he's saying is, and we'll say... uh, 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 extensively in uh, chapter 12 of this letter is that no one's gift puts them ahead. They were all racing, you see, after the best gift and the most impressive gift and and rushing forward and the poor uh, other people were being left behind. And Paul says that's completely the wrong image to have, he says, you're actually together in your gifts. No one is behind. God has gifted the body of Jesus Christ, the local church, with all the gifts that he wants to, uh, to give to them corporately. And you can use them corporately, as a team, as the body of Christ, so that no one is left behind. You, plural, together, uh, do not lack any spiritual gift, he says. Do you see? Now, it's not that they don't lack anything. He makes it plain that actually, um, to be honest, they're yearning for something. They're yearning for Jesus to come again. They're yearning for the new heaven and the new earth. They're yearning for that day when there will be no longer any limitation to their lives. But he says, you're, he, he says you, you don't need to race ahead for it as if uh, somehow um, if you do that and using your gifts you'll get there first and all the, all the rest of the losers will be left behind. He says, no, together we wait for that. There is nothing we can do. We just have to wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And in the meantime, together, we enjoy and exercise the the gifts God has given us. England did a great job in the rugby yesterday, didn't they? Apologies to those who don't watch uh, rugby or 
those from other countries have no idea what rugby is, but uh, it was it was pretty uh, it was pretty stunning. And one of the characteristics of what uh, England managed to do was that their best, fastest players never went out on their own. I was watching with uh, someone, I don't think it was yesterday, a little while back, and they said, why do they keep doubling back and coming back towards where they know they'll get tackled? The point was, if they're out on their own, on the wing, with nobody else out there, when they get tackled, they lose the ball. If they come back into the team, they'll get tackled just the same. But now there'll be someone else to support them. And the team will win. Now, the Apostle's saying something similar here. Some of you ultra-gifted people, maybe you'd want to go ahead and think that there are other people left behind. Fools! We're in it together. Together we don't lack any gift. And then do you see how love flows? Now perhaps you're, you're um, uh, elderly now and you can't do so much as you used to be able to do but you can pray. Use your gift of prayer for all of us. You are not left behind. You're part of the team. Perhaps you feel that there are plenty of brainy people who can teach and can do all sorts of wonderful things here. I can't do anything but I've perhaps got muscles. Do you know, the gift of muscles is just as much a spiritual gift, a charismata, as the gift of prophecy. Use your muscles to set up the church on a Sunday morning. You're not being left behind in doing that. We're together. And some of us perhaps have the, the more prominent gifts and abilities that could quietly make our hearts just feel a little bit proud, our heads just swell a little bit much. If you leave people behind, you leave the body of Christ. you separate yourself from the body of Christ. The body of Christ has no one who's left behind. Now you're not poor, says Paul, and don't behave as if you were. And you people who think you're rich, don't behave as if others were poor. Every one of us possesses the same jewel, the same treasure, In that sense, we are absolutely equal. You're not left behind in your gifts, says Paul. Every one of us has a gift that contributes together to a body that lacks no gift. And if you as an individual think you've got a gift that that sets you off ahead, you're the loser. And then he says, You're not vulnerable in your sin. Possibly the most shocking and striking thing that he says. 
but it's also uh, quite possibly the most important as well because what feeds both the uh, tendency for um, uh, uh, charismatic leaders to gather a following for themselves rather than for the glory of God and for ordinary people to find themselves flocking to all to, to these leaders, what feeds it is a sense of our personal vulnerability as Christians. We feel our weakness, we feel our incompleteness, we long to be free from those failures. And to be honest, some of us feel that one of these days our sin will completely overwhelm us and ruin us. And the answer surely is to, is to just find the right church. Just find the right teaching, the right book, the right person who is going to help us to overcome those sins and, and make us lose our sense of vulnerability. Paul makes an almost unbelievable statement to us if we feel vulnerable like that. He, our Lord Jesus Christ, He, verse 8, will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. Literally, He will establish you until, uh, the, the, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus. Blameless? I mean, does he mean that sin is not, it could not possibly wreak havoc in our lives? Well, not exactly, because the rest of 1 Corinthians makes it plain that it is possible to do real damage to ourselves and to other people through our sin. No, what he means is, if you are a Christian this morning, sin cannot ultimately damage you. It cannot do its ultimate work. It cannot completely ruin you because it cannot separate you from God. When he says that we will be blameless, you see, he doesn't mean that we will be presented somehow as morally perfect before God. He means that, we, that no blame will stick to us when we meet Christ face to face. Because Christ himself has died for all of our sins. He establishes us, you see, on that foundation. The foundation that when we face God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? We say, because Jesus died for my sins and so all my sins, terrible as they are, cannot close the gates of heaven to me. Because you paid God. So I don't need to. That seems a silly foundation to build Christian lives on seems to be a sort of foundation that would mean people would go off and run wild 
in their sin, doing all sorts of wild things because they got this confidence that uh, they got this sort of um, get out of jail free card. But actually, in Christian experience and in the Bible, the opposite is the case. If our sin is not forgiven, our sin separates us from the only source of hope in overcoming it that there is, a relationship with God. But if our sin is forgiven, then there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We can come back again and again, every day, several times a day if we want to, thousands upon thousands of times, asking his forgiveness for the same sins that we failed again and again and again to overcome. And as we come back to him, he will say, welcome, come back to me, I love you still. And slowly over time, the unstoppable love of God will win our hearts in such a way that those sins start to wither away. That is Christian experience again and again and again. The greatest problem that we have is we think sin is more powerful than it is in our lives. We think it can separate us from God. We think it can ruin us. And it cannot. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. He has called, and we said uh, yesterday, actually whenever the, the Apostle uses that, uh, that phrase, he, he has behind it a sense of his inexorable call. And what he's done here, what God has done, is he's called you into fellowship. He's called you into relationship. He's called you into a common bond with Jesus. He's glued you to Jesus. And there is no sin that is going to break that bond. He called you. He united you with Jesus. And he is faithful. He will keep you to the end. So, ordinary Corinthian believer, why are you running around after these people? What exactly are they going to give you? So, ordinary Christian today, why are you chasing after just the right flavour, just the right teaching, just the right leader? You're chasing an illusion and what's more, you're cutting yourself off from something absolutely vital because you see, you're treating yourself as a consumer. You're sitting there thinking, is that the recipe that I want? Shall I try another one? And you're cutting yourself off from what church is all about. Loving relationships. Relationships with fellow believers where you say, these are my people. These are God's people. I'm going to be with them 
through sick and sin, I'm going to love them. I'm going to support them. Gurus who want the following flee from Christians like that. Christians who discover that basic security can thrive because they know they're rich. They know they're not left behind. They know that in the end they're not vulnerable. They can give themselves in love to one another and can grow and flourish as solid, ordinary believers. I long for us to grow in that way. I long for us to be established on those truths that will keep us healthy. Because we live in a city, you see, which is full of everybody making choices and no one quite settling on one thing. We live in a city which is full of people who are increasingly damaged by the underside, the dark side of the dazzling choice-ridden community that we are. And if we can be people who are secure in these truths, we will be people who can love. And we will be people who make a difference in this city.